sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Yes. Happy Father's Day to you. You know, Father's Day is one of those mixed bags, just like Mother's Day is. It's one of those days that for some of us, it's just an amazing day of celebration. It's uh, it's a great day of joy and a great day of fulfillment. Uh, Some of us have had amazing fathers, and uh, on a day like today, we can look back and we can think about how our dads have been so instrumental in shaping our lives, and that is worthy of rejoicing. It's worthy of expressing incredible gratitude for, right? But there are some of us in this room who we did not have the best experience with our dads, and today is a painful day because our own fathers uh, perhaps were not in a place where they could have been great dads to us. Maybe they were absent. Maybe they were negligent or abusive even. There are some of us in this room today, we experience the joy of being dads. Right? We have sons, we have daughters. And today is a day worthy of celebrating because we've experienced the joys of fatherhood ourselves. And yet there are some of us in this room Uh, who are still longing and aching over the loss of sons and daughters, maybe not being able to bear kids, and that is painful for some of us as well. And so today, Antioch, my family, wherever you are today on this massive spectrum, on this deeply personal day, grace to you. Let the grace and the peace of God fill your heart. Let it flood your soul And let it be exactly what you need for it to be on this day for you. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, for those of you guys who uh, were with us last week, we're going to be continuing our story in Acts chapter 10. Uh, I actually did not plan for us to continue joining uh, Peter and Cornelius on their journeys. Uh, But as I've just continued to sit in that, honestly, I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you what it was. On Wednesday morning, so John Smith led our men's prayer, and he had us praying through Acts chapter 10. And I'm telling you, if you want greater revelation and insight and understanding into the scriptures, pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. It will cause things to just be illuminated. It will cause things to uh, explode with understanding and revelation. And there were things I saw in Acts chapter 10. I preached it. I've read it numerous times. And as we prayed it together on Wednesday, there were things that just came alive to me. And so I think that we need to just slow down a little bit. And we need to just take our time through Acts chapter 10 because I believe that there are certain things that are hidden in the story that are providing and they have they have the potential to provide a way forward for us. They have the potential to provide a way forward for us as a church, for our marriages, for our friendships, for our businesses, guys, even to the larger conversation and the culture. Uh, this story has clues that are gonna provide a way forward for us. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna dive into Acts chapter 10 together again as we talk about breaking down barriers and building bridges of friendship. Father, today we just honor you and we honor the ministry and the work 
work of the Holy Spirit that is present in this hour, that is present in this space. I'm reminded in Acts chapter 10, Lord, when Cornelius gathered his entire household together and he said to Peter, we are now sitting here in the presence of God, waiting to hear what God has told you to say. Father, we believe that when we gather together as believers in Christ, that we're gathered together in your presence. We believe that when we sit under the preaching of the word, Lord, we are gathered in your presence. We believe that when we come to your table, that we come because you are the host who has invited us and you are here. Jesus, today, be the central figure of our story. Jesus, today, be the one who can do what only you can do. Heal us, restore us, enlighten us, illuminate our hearts, bring revelation to us today as we come to the scriptures and as we think deeply on the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll have your Bibles. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. We're going to read the next few verses together, and then we're going to talk about a strategy for Antioch Church for the next years to come. Does that excite anybody? When you hear strategy for the next years to come, it's exciting to me because I think it's very, very practical. I think what I'm gonna share with you today is very achievable, and that excites me because it's something that I think we can all wrap our hands around. You know, there's so many social disruptions that are taking place right now. It's not a singular issue that's bringing divisiveness and hostility to the church or to the culture, and I've heard many people say, what do we do moving forward? And I think what I'm gonna share with you today is something that every single one of us can participate with. It's low-hanging fruit. Doesn't mean that it's easy. It's gonna take a lot of hard work. It's gonna take commitment, but I think it's very, very obtainable. Acts chapter 10, let us read together beginning in verse one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him uh, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, uh, my proposal for us moving forward is that friendship, friendship, authentic, genuine friendship with one another is a strategy for the church to be a healing balm and witness to the world. And I wanna take several weeks, if not months, to unpack this idea. I think in the church, we've gotten a pretty good handhold on beliefs. I think we've done a pretty decent job on doctrine. Uh, we teach about spirituality. We talk about so many theological issues. But I'm here to tell you today, the proof is in the pudding on how we handle our friendships, on how we handle our human relationships. Everett and I prayed together on Friday morning and he used this word that I love so much. He talked about human affection. 
He talked about affection in our friendships. And the thing I love about that is it takes the idea of love one another and it breaks it down into something that we can tangibly wrap our minds and our hearts around. It's one thing to say, guys, love one another. It's another thing to say, let affection grow in your heart for one another. And I'm affectionate with my friends. I'm affectionate with my friends. So guys, here's the strategy. I'm giving you an overview of the next several weeks and months. Number one, in order for us to build authentic friendships, in order for us to build lasting, loving, deep, genuine, unbreakable friendships, we need to identify that every single one of us have uniquenesses. Every single one of us have uniquenesses. We have things that make us especially different. And if we're not careful, those uniquenesses can actually become hindrances. Those uniquenesses can become barriers to real relationship. So today and for the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about some of those uniquenesses and we're gonna talk about breaking down barriers and how we can build bridges. Breaking down barriers and building bridges because you see, that's what happened with Peter and Cornelius. There were legitimate uniquenesses to each of these people that actually created barriers between the two of them. And in order for gospel reconciliation to take place, those uniquenesses had to be identified, but then the barriers had to be crossed and bridges needed to be built. The second thing that needed to happen was that there needed to be radical hospitality. The thing I love in this story is that you see Cornelius extending an invitation to Peter. He says, Peter, would you come and would you come stay in my home? Guys, that's radical hospitality. For a Roman soldier Gentile to invite a Jewish itinerant preacher to come and to stay in his home, that is radical hospitality. Notice that when the delegation from Cornelius came to Peter's house, what did Peter do? He said, guys, we got to go out on a journey tomorrow, so why don't you stay in my home? Actually, it's not even my home. It's Simon the Tanner's home, but I'm a guest of honor here, and I have, I've got privileges here, so I'm extending an invitation for you as Gentiles to live in my space as we prepare for our journey. Peter comes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius' household. And then it says after the Holy Spirit fell that Peter and his delegation stayed with Cornelius a few more days. Guys, the only way forward in this society with all of our differences is if we learn how to practice radical hospitality. Amen. Out of radical hospitality, we see that there's table fellowship that takes place. And one of the things I want to propose to you is that the table become even more central to our lives. That the table become more central to our Christian gatherings. The table become more central to our families and our friendships. There's something that happens when people gather around tables in the presence of God where Jesus is central. Scripture says that we actually gather together in his presence and he's made known in a unique way. Friends, listen, don't take for granted what happens when you make a meal and when you gather friends and family around the table and you invite God's presence into that space and you ask God to help you tend to his presence and to see one another, he begins to shape us around table fellowship. Amen. One of the things I actually want to propose here in the next several weeks is that we, we make a change in our life group structure to actually calling them table groups because of everything theologically, spiritually, and relationally, I believe happens that flows out of the table. After table fellowship and redeeming table fellowship, we see that we can begin to cultivate friendship. And we're gonna spend weeks on friendship. I believe that, I believe we're probably living in one of the most lonely cultures and one of the most lonely hours of society. 
We're crippled, we're disabled. We don't know how to build friends. We don't know how to establish and nurture and cultivate friendships. I had somebody come up to me at the end of first service and they said, Pastor, I want you to know that I felt like you were reading out of my journal because just this week I was journaling and saying, God, I long for a real friend, someone that I can experience life with. And here's why I think this matters. I think this matters because our lives are so narrow. Our lives are narrow. You can only live your experience. You can only live the life that God has given you to live. And that's a very, very narrow life. But when I enter into authentic relationship with you, my life expands. I've never been to New York, but when I interact with New Yorkers, I get a little bit of a slice of what it's like to live in New York. I'm not Puerto Rican, but some of my best friends are Puerto Rican. And when I begin to enter into friendship, I go, this is how Puerto Ricans see the world. And it's amazing and it's beautiful and it expands me and it makes me more compassionate. It makes me more wise. It makes me more adaptable. It makes me more understanding. And this is why friendships matter. We see God through the lens of our friendships. So how do we enter into this? How do we engage this long, long journey? I've got a couple of ideas. Number one, we have to recognize that our lives are unique and we have to celebrate that. I want you to know today, guys, that there is no one on the planet that is just like you. No one on the planet. No one on the planet you're created in your, with your own unique DNA. You're created with your own unique fingerprint that no one has. But even going beyond that, there are things about how you are wired. There are things about your life story. And here's the thing I want you to just kind of drill into you, right? Your life story shapes the way you see the greater story. Your life story affects the way you see the greater story. And the problem is sometimes is that we assume that everyone's story needs to be our story. We assume that we're the central figure in the drama. We assume that every character should be our character, but you have a unique vantage point that no one else has in the story. And it's amazing, and it's vital, it's beautiful, it's necessary. Scripture says in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, it says that you knit me together in my mother's womb. And then it says, I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Part of that means that you have a uniqueness about you. Part of that means that all of the puzzle pieces of your life that have combined together to make the mosaic of who you are are amazing and they're designed partially by God and they're necessary. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not a coincidence. You're not, a, you're not an accidental consequence. You are not an accident. You are sovereignly put together by God and it's beautiful and I need it. We need it. The world needs it. Look at this verse in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. The scripture even goes so far as to say that not only are you fearfully and wonderfully made, but that God was even involved in when in the historical timeline you would be on earth. Isn't that amazing? Like you could have been born in the 1800s. You could have been born in ancient Palestine. You could have been born in the 1970s or in the 1920s, but you were born exactly when you were born and God had a unique reason for it. Look at this. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed time in history. Your birthday was not an accident. And then he says this, and he also marked out the boundaries of their lands. 
the boundaries of their lands, where you were born, where your parents were born, where your grandparents were born. The lineage of your family was all designed by God and it's necessary and it's amazing and it's beautiful and it has shaped who you are. It has shaped and affected who you are. And today I wanna talk about our life profile. I wanna talk about our life profile and I actually have a hidden agenda here. I want to overwhelm you with how unique you are. I wanna talk about all the various ingredients that go into who you are, all right? So as you think through all of these different categories, and we're not gonna analyze or interpret them, we're just going to survey them. But as you listen to these categories, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to ask yourself, how do these things shape the way I perceive the world and the way that I receive the world, okay? And that's everything. How does this affect the way that I perceive God? How does this affect the way that I perceive society? How does this affect the way that I receive the people that are around me? Let's walk through this together. Number one, I want you to think about your geographical location. Think about where you were born. Some of us fare from Asia. Some of us fare from Latin America. Christie's uh, father is full-blooded Costa Rican. Her mom is from Alabama. That affects the way that Christie views the world. My mom is full-blooded Korean. My dad was born in Jonesboro, Arkansas, lived there the most of his life until he joined the army and moved away. And that has affected the way both of them view the world. And then they pour that into me. I want you to think about even just the uniquenesses of what it means to grow up in the north of the United States versus the south. And then we can't even, we can't even stop there because the northeast is so radically different than the northwest. New York and Boston are radically different than Seattle and Portland. Florida and California are two completely different ecosystems, not only physically, but in their ethos, in their culture, in their belief systems. And then you have the Midwest, right? And it affects the way that we view the world. It affects the way that we view history. It affects the information that we take in where we've grown up. Think about culturally. Asians view the world culturally. They interact culturally way differently than Anglo-European people. Africans, Middle Easterns, it affects the way that we view the world. Think about your gender. If you're male, you see the world differently than if you are female. If you are male, you've experienced certain positions of power throughout your life than females have. We're just getting to a place now where we're starting to see a little bit better equality, a little bit better understanding of how amazing females are, women in our society, and how they've had to work harder to have the same level of standing that males have had all throughout history and society. Let's talk about uh, our age and the generation that you were born in. That is a radical, radical difference. The way that boomers see the world and engage with people, the way they engage with economy, the way they interpret the news, the way they interpret scripture, the things that matter to a boomer are different than busters. And the way that busters see the world is different than those who were born Gen X. And then you have millennials and Gen Z, you have technology that affects the way that each of these generations affect the world. Access to information shapes the way that we view the world and society. Just think about that for a few minutes. What about our education? Our education. Some of us in this room have had opportunities to have higher levels of education. You've been exposed to a broader and deeper level of material. Doesn't mean that you're better. 
And the thing is that we have to understand this. When we start talking about our unique life profile, the tendency and the temptation is that we'll look at these things and say, this makes me superior. This makes you inferior. This makes me inferior. This makes you superior. Guys, we have to eliminate that. That is a tendency and a temptation of our sinful humanity to automatically take something that's unique and assume that this should be the norm for everyone or that this makes me better than you. It does not make me better. It does not make you better. It just means that this is a part of your story. It's a part of the unique fingerprint of your life. It has etched out your puzzle pieces in a unique way. Some of us in this room have had physical challenges in life. Some of us in this room have had uh, challenges with learning. That doesn't make that you're inferior. It means that this is a part of your story. It means that you've had to fight through things. You've had to advocate for things. You've had to learn in a different way. It doesn't mean that it's worse or wrong. It just means that it's different and it's unique and it has shaped your life. Think about our socioeconomic uniquenesses. Some of us in this room have experienced affluence and abundance. And that's amazing. And thank God for that. Thank God for the opportunities that come with having plenty. But it shapes the way that you view the world. It creates certain expectations inside of you. If any of you have been to other countries, particularly third world countries, you go to certain places. I remember as a kid, my dad was in the military. We went to Germany and I never understood what it meant. Even as a kid, guys, we're talking 30 years ago where you'd have to pay to use your public restroom. And I was like, this is ridiculous. They give you these meager portions of toilet paper and they don't give you free packets of ketchup at McDonald's. All drinks don't come with ice. And I just thought, this is dumb, right? As a kid, right? Why? Because those are privileges that I was afforded because we live in an affluent country. You want a stack of napkins that you use to take home with you? You can go to any restaurant, probably pre-COVID, pick up a whole stack of napkins and it could, you can use that for your family for weeks. You could save money that way, guys. Don't do that, okay? Right? Seriously, packets of soy sauce from Asian restaurants. I mean, just we live in an affluent country and it affects our expectations, right? Wrong, ah, it just shapes the way you view the world. You, be, you, you come to expect certain things based on your abundance, right? You waste certain things. I waste certain things. But then if you grew up from an impoverished standpoint, it affects the way that you view the world. It affects the way that you view responsibility and work ethic. It, it affects the way that you, you, you take care of the things that have been given to you because you know what it's like to not have plenty. Your socioeconomic background has massive effect on the way you view life. If you've experienced financial loss in your life, setbacks, injustices, things that were not your fault, and then all of a sudden you find that you're at the bottom of the barrel, it's just scrapping again. I promise you it affects the way you see God, the scriptures, yourself, the people around you in the world. Let's talk about our families, our families. Think about where you are right now. A single person sees life way differently than a married person. A married person sees life differently than someone who has kids. Remember, it's not better or worse. It's not superior or inferior. It's just different and part of this is very simply just part of the maturing process. I remember when Christy and I first came to Springs Harvest Fellowship 15 years ago, we were youth pastors. And part of the thing that shaped our lives was leading missions teams. 
But the way we led missions teams as a married couple without kids is radically different than the way we lead missions teams with kids on every level, from safety to training to even heart. Man, we were a little harsh. We didn't have the heart of a mother or father in the way that we were training young kids. And I remember we had leaders who would come to us and they would say, listen, you know, you, you just don't know what it's like because you don't have kids. And I would chafe at that. I would chafe at, you don't know me, right? And they're like, I may not know you, but I know you don't have kids. And you know what would have been helpful for me and Christy is us for, for us to humble ourselves and for us to say, you're right, we don't have kids. It's not our life experience. We're not there. You see the world in a way that's different than we see the world. Help us, teach us, mentor us, guide us. But we didn't do that. We took an arrogant posture. We folded our arms. We said, yeah, we may not know kids, but we know missions. And we know how to do this in a way that you don't. And you need both of those interpretations of the world. Some of you guys come from blended families. Some of you come from mixed families. I want you to think about your, your family of origin. Probably one of the most, if not the most, significant factors that shapes the way that you view everything is the family that you grew up in. Some of us had fathers that were present. Some of us had fathers that were absent. Fathers were not around. Some of us had mothers that were present, mothers that were absent. Some of us had moms who took more of a predominant role Vocally in shaping the family, some of us had fathers who took more of a predominant role, and that affects the way that we view the world. It affects the way we view marriage. It affects the way that we view our own identity, the way that we see God. Some of us come from mixed families, blended families. Some of us are widowers. Some of us are divorced. Guys, this all has a bearing on our interpretive lens. Not better, not worse, your life story. Think about your personality. You know, years ago, the biggest thing was there were, there were four temperaments. You had the sanguine, you had the choleric, the melancholy, the phlegmatic. That was like the latest craze. Then there were strengths finders, Marcus Buckingham. Then there were strengths finders 2.0, right? Then there was Myers-Briggs, which was all these, these configurations of all these different personalities, ENFJ, ENFT, ENFP. I mean, it's like, how many letters are we going to string together to try to categorize us in something? Now there's the Enneagram, right? That's, every single one of us are some number, but it's not enough to be a number. Now you're a number with a wing, right? Like I'm an eight with a seven wing, or are you an eight with a nine wing? I don't know. And every one of these uniquenesses define who we are in some way, and yet we cannot even be defined by the personality tests. They just kind of give a little bit of an understanding into the complexity of who we are as individuals. Some of you guys are extroverted. You come alive when people are around. Some of you guys hate people. Guys, we need to work on that a little bit. <laughs> you don't hate people. But some of you guys really enjoy your alone time and your me time and you recharge by being alone. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's just the unique way that you're made. Some of us are more administrative, more organized. Some of us are more creative. There's so many uniquenesses to our personality. Think about uh, our religious background, you guys. Most of us in this room would consider us Christian, but do you realize that there are 43,000 plus denominations in the Christian faith? Over 43,000 thousand denominations. Why is that? Because from our view of the Trinity, 
to our view of the Holy Spirit, to our view of Jesus, to our view of the church, to our view of the sacraments, to our view of worship, to our view of physical spaces. Are we high church? Are we low church? Do we believe in gathering? Do we believe in being centralized? Are we house church? Are we mega church? I mean, it's endless. And then we take this Bible and we all interpret the Bible in different ways. I like expository preaching. I like topical. I think, yeah, and there's just, it's endless. 43,000 denominations, right? Some of them, some of them, they are wrong, right? <laughs> Not necessarily superior, inferior, just different. And each of these things have something unique that they offer. They have something beautiful and unique that they offer. You understand what I'm saying today? Think about political affiliation. Some of us identify more with a conservative right-wing approach to politics and national policy. Some of us have a little bit more of a left-leaning approach to politics and national policy. This affects the way that we view everything. It affects the way that we, uh, we listen to the news. It affects, it affects our natural bias, our immediate interpretive grid when we read an article. Right, wrong, different, different. This is why friendship matters, you guys. Friendship matters because I disagree better with my friends. I disagree better with someone that I've got relational capital with. I disagree better with someone that I know loves me and that I love them and I've not automatically written them off because I've established genuine friendship with them. Friendship is the way forward. Authentic friendship is the way forward. And over the weeks to come, we're gonna talk about fighting for your friendships. We're gonna talk about how to nurture, how to cultivate your friendships. We're gonna talk about how to protect your friendships. We're gonna talk about the fact that your friendships are gonna be tested. They're gonna be put through the fire, but they are worth fighting for, I promise you. Your friendships are a gift to you from God to expand your view of the world. It's your ability, it gives you the ability to walk in someone else's shoes, even if only temporarily. I want you to think this morning just even about your religious ex- or your, uh, your life experiences. Guys, we could go on and on here. Some of us in this room have experienced deep, deep trauma and pain. And it shapes the way that you view everything. It shapes the way that you read the scriptures now. You read the scriptures more empathically. You, you read the scriptures with more compassion. You humanize the people that are in the scriptures now because you've experienced a level of tragedy and trauma in your life. You see things differently. You hear things differently. You respond to the cry of others differently because of your life experiences. Some of you guys have had amazing opportunities. Some of you guys have traveled the world and it has broadened you. Some of you guys have only lived in Colorado Springs your entire life. Not inferior, not superior. It's just different. Think about your life experiences. And thank God for your life experiences that create puzzle pieces, as my friend Sidron shared with me. They create puzzle pieces that all begin to come together to put your life in focus. I want us to read back through Peter and Cornelius' story. And I want us to read it from a little bit of a different lens now. I want you to read through the story with me for the next several verses. And when you come across something that gives you a little bit of a clue on who Cornelius or Peter might be. I just want you to just go ding. You mean, I see something. Let's go back to Acts chapter 10, shall we? Acts chapter 10, beginning again in verse one. At Caesarea, (laughs) very good. It's like Blue's Clues, guys, right? (laughs) At Caesarea, what is that? That is Cornelius's geographical location. And if we had time to do a little bit of a historical study on Caesarea, And we could compare that to Peter's place of origin. 
Anybody know where Peter was from? The scripture, yeah, exactly, in Galilee. Peter was from Galilee. And then do we, do, don't you know that the region of Galilee was unique from Samaria? It was unique from Judea. It was unique from Jerusalem. There were uniquenesses about that geographical location that shaped who Peter was, that affected the way that he viewed Cornelius before he ever met Cornelius. Think about that. Let's keep reading. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. It was a man named Cornelius a centurion. Yeah, very good. He was a centurion. What was a centurion? It was a Roman soldier. This was his occupation. He'd be like an NCO. Just so you guys are like, what is a centurion? A centurion was an NCO in the army. That gives some of you guys a little bit of a, of, a, of a frame of reference there, which means that he had a lot of responsibility with not as much authority, right? Not as much recognition. He had about 100 guys over him. He reported people above him and below him. He saw the world through a a structure of authority. He understood protocol. He understood honor. This is why the first time when Cornelius sees Peter, what does he do? He bows down. Why? Because he was a man in the military. He understood honor. He understood rank and protocol. And he was giving honor to Peter. And now we we have their cultural customs that come into play in their interaction. Where was Peter from? No, I mean, what was Peter's occupation? When we first find Peter, he's a fisherman, blue collar, strong worth at work ethic, probably on a little bit more of an impoverished scale of the society at that time, right? He was busting it every single day. He gets invited into this internship. He's following Jesus around, and before he knows it, he becomes an apostle. Wow, from a fisherman to an apostle. And then when we meet Peter, he's an itinerant preacher. Do you think that affected the way that he viewed life and the world around him? Absolutely. Verse number two, he and all of his family. Absolutely, Cornelius had a family. Doesn't say exactly how many family members, but here's what we know. As we read the story, there was a lot. There was a lot. Because when Peter finally gets to Cornelius' house, Peter walks into a packed house, right? And probably in that day, Cornelius had his wife, probably had all of his kids, probably had all the servants, probably had his parents and his wife's parents all living in the same place, right? Which tells us something. It tells us that Cornelius wasn't a statistic. It tells us that Cornelius wasn't some arbitrary figure out there. Cornelius was somebody's husband. Cornelius was somebody's father. Cornelius had people depending on him. Cornelius was a son. He was an uncle. He was a brother. He was a man that was connected to a social and relational network. And so was Peter. Right? When we first find Peter, who's Peter with? His brother. Right? Matthew chapter 4 tells us that Peter and his brother were fishing. And Jesus calls them both. Right? Peter leaves the family business. Right? Think about that. Humanize that for a moment. And think about the fact that, you know, all of Peter's life growing up, he's helping his dad catch fish. And in one moment, he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I'm, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to follow the Messiah. There's there's massive, massive implications for this. We know that Peter's married. We don't know if he has kids, right? Because in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house and heals her from a fever. Peter had a family as well. Verse 3, one day at about three, let's go back to verse 2. He and all his family were devout and they were God-fearing. Yes, this gets into Cornelius' religion. Maybe it was a syncretistic religion. You know, in the time of Rome, it was, it was just honoring one of many gods. 
But he had a special compassion and a special sensitivity for the Jews and the Jewish religion. And he had an awareness of God. How would this be different in Peter's mind if Cornelius had no respect for God whatsoever? Do you think that would affect the way that Peter approached Cornelius? Absolutely it would. And we know that Peter was a Jew who became a Christian which affected his entire worldview. Guys, we could go on and on. Last one, at the end of the passages that we read, what was the first thing that Cornelius did after he received the dream, the vision? He calls two of his servants and a soldier, ding, ding, and he sends them to Peter's house. What does this tell us about Cornelius? He was a man of affluence, right? Poor people don't have servants, guys, right? He was was somebody who could just at a moment's notice, go, I'm not, I'm not taking that journey. I'm like, hey, you, you two guys go to Peter's house and ask him kindly and respectfully if he can come, right? Peter, Peter is, he's living on his, he's, he's an itinerant preacher. He's staying in someone else's home, for goodness sakes. He doesn't have servants that are at his disposal. All of these things come to bear in this interaction. And yet, what we see happen is that despite all of their uniquenesses and their distinctives and their differences, we see that God bring these two worlds together. Because friendship is a way forward for the kingdom. Because learning how to recognize one another's differences and and taking the slow and long journey of understanding those uniquenesses, of affirming and celebrating those uniquenesses, of receiving and being shaped by those distinctives and differences, of learning how to meld distinctives and differences together in a beautiful kaleidoscope that reflects the multifaceted nature of who God is to the world is the kingdom of God, friends. It's the kingdom of God. It's the way forward. So what do we do with this? Here's a couple of thoughts for us to chew on and for us to think about. I want to make sure that we really get these thoughts deep into us. Number one is that my life affects my vision. My life affects my sight. It just does. It just does, which means that we have to work very hard because the only life you know is a life you've lived. And if you bring the life you've lived into conversation with someone else's life who's been radically different, We have to give space to the fact that someone else has lived a radically different life than ours. And it's not better and it's not worse. It's not superior or inferior. It's just a different life that God has been at work in. That God has been at work in. Can we just pause here for a second? Maybe point two, just recognize that that God is at work in every single one of these uniquenesses. He's at work in every geographical location. He's at work in every occupation. He's at work in every gender. He's at work in every ethnicity. He's at work in every culture. And every single one of these things are working together to display who God is. Number three, guys, listen, there is no one size fits all. There's no one size fits all. You know what that means? That would be like us going to like, who's who's my Chipotle crowd in here? Let me see the Chipotle crowd. Great. Who's the Qdoba crowd, right? I mean, let's just start right there. Right? Just let's just start right there. Uh, Chipotle, Qdoba, Chipotle, Qdoba, right? Listen, listen, not better, not worse. I know you think it is, but what we do is we go, oh, Chipotle is awful. How could you eat a Qdoba? Oh my God, we do that. We do that. We do that playfully, but there's something inside of us that says, what I like is better. What I like is best. What I like is the standard. We live this way. And then watch this. The next step is, all right, I like the mod pizza example a little bit better than, right? 
So, have you guys ever been to Mod Pizza? I think Mod Pizza's brilliant. You know why? Because everybody likes your pizza a different way. Right? As a kid, I was the worst. I was the worst. We would go to a pizza restaurant. My parents were ordering a Supreme with all this stuff on there. And I was like, no, I just want pepperoni on my pizza. Right? And it would just drive my parents crazy. This Mod Pizza's brilliant. Right? Because I can just pick whatever I want on my pizza. But here's what we do. Here's what we do. We go in there and we say, the way that I make pizza should be the way that you make pizza. Come on, right? We got some veggie pizza in the place. We got some meat lovers pizza in the place. We got a little bit of both in the place. Then we got those people that just want cheese, which I don't understand, but I'm not going to knock it, right? Then we got people who throw pineapples on their pizza. We got people who put artichokes on their pizza. It's just, listen, it's endless. It's endless. But here's what we do. We go, and we, we, don't, we don't say this overtly, but we say this subversively. We say the way that I see the world and the way that I've experienced the world and the things that I like are what everyone should like. Guys, praise God and everyone's like you. And praise God not everyone's like me. Listen, if you're beyond, uh, you know, watching animated movies, you really should watch Trolls World Tour. It's a brilliant and fun and fascinating, but such a deeply insightful movie. And it's all around uh, the idea of music and how there's these different genres and categories of music. Some like classical, some like rock, some like funk, some like hip hop, some like soul, some like jazz, some like everything in between, right? But in the story of Trolls World Tour, without breaking, without, you know, giving away all the spoilers, it's this idea that there's all this beautiful diversity of music, and yet each, each kind of string or strand of music says, but well, we just need to take over all of those other types of music and make it all like ours. And this is the way that we approach the world if we're not careful. There is no one size fits all. So you need to understand that your life story affects the way that you see the entire story, which means that it affects the way that you perceive and receive the people around you. But listen, as we enter into this journey, we have to also understand this, that because everyone else is unique, that their life story affects the way they perceive and receive me. Which means the only way forward is with empathy and patience and grace and compassion, because there's gonna be some things I say in my ignorance that are gonna trigger something in someone else's life story that if I don't take the time to understand that, I'm gonna throw up walls without even knowing it. I'm, I'm gonna affect the relationship before I've even had an opportunity to have a relationship. And some of that may not be because I'm malicious. Some of that may not be because I'm ugly. Some of that may just be because I'm ignorant and I don't understand. And I've never had a friend just like you. We have to understand that there are spectrums that all not Democrats are all the same, that not all Republicans are the same, not all Christians are the same, not all women are the same, not all men are the same. And one of the most damaging things that we do, we throw these sweeping blanket statements on people and we remove nuance. I want you to think about how you feel when someone just labels you this generic term out there and they've already got you pegged, they've already got you figured out before they've even met with you and had coffee together with you. They know nothing about your family, nothing about your story, nothing about the books you've read, nothing about the foods you like, nothing about the worlds you've traveled to, and yet they've already got you pegged. They've got all these nice, cute little categories, and they've got you pegged. Do you like that? Absolutely, you despise that. But yet, if we're not careful, we do that with the people around us. Guys, the only way forward is with humility 
and grace. Jonathan, would you come this morning? This is why the table is so important. Because here's the thing, with all of our uniquenesses and all of our differences, we have one thing in common, that every single one of us need a savior. That every single one of us are people whose story has been tainted and marred. Our perspectives and our lenses have been so deeply distorted by sin. And today I wanna propose two things to you guys, Antioch. Number one, I wanna encourage you to take your uniquenesses and celebrate them. It's so tempting to just look at the parts of our life that we don't like. It's so tempting to look at the parts of our story that are not beautiful and wanna hide those. But friends, listen, every part of your life in the hands of God can be redeemed to touch and heal someone else's life. Someone needs the broken places of your life that have been healed by God because it's exactly the thing that's gonna unlock their heart. So we need grace for God to redeem every part of our story. But here's the other thing. We need grace to recognize and to honor everyone else's story as well. And friends, I don't know how to do that without the Holy Spirit and without the grace of God. So would you stand with me this morning as we come to the place where Jesus invites us to receive grace afresh and anew. Where he sets a table before us and he says, no matter what your life story is, you're welcome here. No matter whether or not you're young or you're old or you're male or you're female or you come from a Roman Catholic background or an evangelical background, whether or not you voted for Trump or you wish that Hillary would have become prey, it doesn't matter. At this table, you are welcome and you are wanted and there is healing and there is understanding and there is grace and there is the work of the Spirit that is offered to you at the table of the Lord. So Father, today we come with open hearts and we come with open hands and we ask, oh God, that you would meet us here. We come to receive from you. Father, we come to place all of the bread of our life in your hands to be blessed, to be broken, and to be given to the world. And we come here today with open hands to receive the bread of one another, to see each other, not from an earthly vantage point, God, to see each other as you see each and every one of us so that we can take this into the world to become a healing witness to the brokenness around us. Antioch, today I invite you to come to receive a fresh and anew from Jesus as he invites you to his table today. Let us receive.
top layer of plastic to give us access to the body of Christ. Scripture says that from one loaf, it was broken to give life to many. The one loaf, the one life, Jesus Christ, who gave his life so that every single one of us can be grafted into that life. So today we come, and afresh and anew we say, Jesus, give us your life, give us your perspective, give us your strength, give us your grace. Fold our life into your life. Make us one, make us one, as you and the Father and the Spirit are one. Let us receive today of the body of Jesus. receive the cup. Jesus, in like manner, when he was with his disciples, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. There is no longer Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave and free. We've become one in Christ Jesus. The Lord has taken all these distinctives and differences and he's pulled them together in the common denominator of Christ. So let the blood of Jesus, friends, wash over you and redeem you and sanctify you afresh and anew today as we receive the cup. Let us receive. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.